Hello, glad to see you're back. This week's session is titled A Comprehensive and Integrated Approach to Preventing Sepsis and AMR and is chaired by Folisade Ogunsola from Nigeria. As always, please use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker and head over to YouTube should you wish to see the presentations of the speakers. Now, over to Sade to start the session. And this afternoon, we have with us four speakers. We have Kelly Naylor from UNICEF Switzerland, who would be talking on preventing infection and improving health in LMICs, lessons learned from water, sanitation, and hygiene programs. And this will be followed by Dr. Benedetta Aleganzi from the World Health Organization in Switzerland. And she'll be talking about WHO IPC strategies to prevent antimicrobial resistance and sepsis. Then we have Dr. Evangelos Giamerilos from the European Sepsis Alliance in Greece, who will give us a talk on the impact of BCG vaccination on COVID-19 and respiratory infections. And we will close this session with um, Dr. Mervyn Murr from the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, starting sepsis and antimicrobial resistance in ICU patients. So our first, our first speaker is Dr. Benedetta Aleganzi, and I'm going to introduce her briefly. She's a specialist in infectious diseases and tropical medicine, infection prevention and control and hospital epidemiology, and currently works at the World Health Organization as a coordinator and lead of the IPC Global Unit, including the Clean Care is Safer Care program. Since 2013, Bernadetta has gathered the title of Professor of Infectious Diseases in the official Italian professorship list and is an adjunct professor to the Institute of Global Health at the Faculty of Medicine, University of Geneva, Switzerland. She closely collaborates with the team at the IPC and WHO Collaborating Center on Patient Safety, University of Geneva Hospital as well as with the Armstrong Institute for Patient Safety and Quality in John Hopkins University. She's currently involved in the leader supervises IPC activities in Sierra Leone and Guinea. She has experience in clinical management of infectious diseases and tropical medicine. She's the author of and co-author of more than 150 scientific publications, including articles published in high-profile medical journals, such as The Lancet, Lancet Infectious Diseases, New England Journal of Medicine, and the WHO Bulletin, and has six book chapters. Um, Bernadette, I welcome you to this session. Please take the floor. Thank you very much, Shade, for the nice introduction. And uh, uh, hello, everyone. Uh, good morning, afternoon, evening uh, to everyone. And many thanks to the Global Sepsis Alliance colleagues uh, for co-organizing with WHO this uh, important Congress today. So uh, my role is to talk about uh, the WHO IPC strategy to, present, to prevent AMR and sepsis. And in fact, I would like to start to uh, mention um, some work we have done for the Global Sepsis Report, which was presented this morning and will be launched later uh, today. Um, this work is quite uh, original and innovative because it's the first uh, uh, systematic review on healthcare-associated sepsis, which we have undertaken together with the Robert Koch Institute. And um, in this uh, systematic review, we have uh, had uh, 
really many hits, more than 3,000 titles, uh, but uh, eventually we only retrieved uh, and included 51 studies uh, in the uh, review. And out of these, 22 were from low-middle-income countries. So not a negligible number of studies, but certainly less than other, um, other uh, level of income of countries. Um, in the next slide, you can see that uh, healthcare associated sepsis uh, um, in uh, among all uh, hospital-treated sepsis uh, was 23.6%. So one in four patients uh, with hospital-treated sepsis had a healthcare-acquired uh, infection and sepsis, therefore. Um, we pulled incidence uh, per thousand patients, and uh, this was uh, 15 per thousand in, in adults and almost 10 times higher in neonates, uh, 113. Um, and indeed, we also found out that 57% uh, of all types of healthcare-associated infections were appearing uh, as neonatal healthcare-associated sepsis. This problem was really uh, mo much more remarkable in uh, intensive care units where uh, basically um, sepsis uh, uh, with organ dysfunction uh, uh, was acquired during ICU stay, stay in 24% uh, of cases, and it was of hospital origin, uh, almost uh, up to 50% of cases, half of the cases. Uh, you can see also on the slide what was uh, the hospital incidence uh, of healthcare associated sepsis with organ dysfunction per thousand patients. And you can see that, of course, uh, uh, this incidence was uh, remarkably higher in ICU than hospital wide. So uh, what are the consequences of this? Um, I already mentioned uh, that one in four cases of sepsis were acquired in the hospital among all hospital-treated sepsis. And the mortality, crude mortality, of all patients with healthcare or hospital-acquired sepsis was 24.4%. Uh, but among ICU-treated patients with sepsis, it was more than 50%, 52.3%. This condition uh, has a high impact, as we all know, on length of stay. So the median length of stay was uh, uh, from two to three uh, times higher uh, for health uh, care-associated sepsis compared to community-acquired sepsis. and um, it's interesting also that we tried to identify uh, the sepsis uh, causes from the microbiological point of view, and only seven studies were able to investigate and report data on this related to healthcare-associated sepsis. And this was due uh, in up to one-third of cases uh, to drug-resistant uh, bacteria. 
So uh, this review has several limitations, in particular heterogeneity and also the difficulties to distinguish healthcare associated from community sepsis, uh, uh, variable case definitions, uh, um, low number of studies from low middle income countries and not covering all regions. So global estimates were really difficult to be made. And also, as I said earlier, no study uh, was um, measuring attributable uh, mortality. And we had limited data on uh, etiology and AMR. So moving to aspects that are related to infection prevention and control, we know that overall uh, sepsis and infection, both in the community and in healthcare, is highly preventable. We heard many examples of this today, in particular for healthcare-associated infections, uh, from 35 to 55% are preventable through effective infection control. Uh, neonatal deaths are preventable up to 84%. Uh, maternal infections and related deaths are largely pre preventable. And now we need to understand how to achieve this. So in the next slide, we can start to uh, mention that WASH, as my colleague later will mention, uh, is uh, really important to uh, prevent infections and, and sepsis and, and related AMR. Uh, also, uh, we know that um, quality of care and infection prevention and control uh, really are critical to prevent AMR and prevent AMR in the context of outbreaks and outbreaks beyond uh, those caused by antimicrobial resistant uh, microorganisms. Uh, we are in the current situation of an important viral outbreak where IPC is at the core of resolving this problem. Uh, we also know that effective IPC interventions are cost effective and uh, actually have a cost benefit. So we know from OECD, these are data that we displayed in an um, in AMR uh, advocacy brochure last year, where we really, in a snapshot, we uh, explain that um, the frequency of AMR infections uh, can be reduced uh, uh, by two-thirds, uh, combining IPC, hand hygiene in particular, with antimicrobial stewardship programs. This way, only in Europe, uh, we can prevent 27,000 deaths every year, uh, reducing eight, the health burden uh, of infections leading to sepsis as well by 85%. And we can save uh, three euro per capita in Europe every year by these interventions. However, uh, we have a serious problem. Uh, that is lack of IPC and IPC implementation. Here, I'm going to present you some data uh, collected by WHO. Uh, in this case, high-level data, we know from the AMR um, monitoring system that 88% of countries uh, worldwide report to have uh, an IPC program nationally, but only 28% report that they actually have implementation uh, nationwide at healthcare facility level. 
WHO undertook a more detailed uh, study in 2018, interviewing 88 national APC leads and gathering really much more detailed data on the fact that, according to these national APC leads, uh, there are uh, 62% of countries having a program at the national level, but only 26% have a budget dedicated to IPC, and implementation is much lower, ranging from 22 to, to 67%. And in the graphs, uh, you can appreciate that there is a significant difference between high-income countries and in particular low-income countries uh, in these various variables that I just uh, mentioned. Uh, similarly, 67% uh, of countries have national guidelines, but only 36 uh, of them, percent of them have a guideline implementation strategy and only 22% uh, monitor their implementation and compliance. Less than 50% of countries have in have training for IPC. And again, there are remarkable differences between uh, low and low middle income countries and high income countries. Uh, the last piece of data from our program is a very recent program um, monitoring um, survey that we undertook in 2019 on IPC implementation at the facility level at this, uh, this time. So on average, facilities were actually doing quite well in this sample of uh, more than 5,000 facilities from 112 countries because on average they were on a level that we call uh, intermediate level of implementation of IPC. But you can see on this slide that there is a remarkable difference between um, low-income countries, which are actually at a basic level of IPC and low, lower and upper middle income countries and high income countries, of course. And the same, in the same survey, there was a dedicated section on hand hygiene and we can really appreciate the same on the slide that is on uh, the screen now, only basic level for uh, low income countries, advanced for high income countries and intermediate for low middle income countries. In particular, regarding hand hygiene, in the bar, uh, in the first bar, which is related to facilities availability for uh, hand hygiene, infrastructure, supplies, and so on, you can see that the score is really low for low-income countries, is the brown bar, compared to the others, which means that still there is a long way to go to supply uh, hand hygiene equipment at the point of care in uh, healthcare facilities in low-income countries. And indeed, we know that lack of wash and IPC services causes a number of uh, deaths every year, which was established by a systematic review very interesting, published in 2019, related to the fact that uh, 1.6 million deaths um, are attributable uh, to lack of wash due to obviously infections and some of these obviously are sepsis event. And in particular, um, almost 1 million deaths are uh, due to wash uh, 
failures uh, among uh, diarrheal diseases, and we know that diarrhea is the first cause of sepsis, as previously reported by other speakers. Other data by WHO show that we have gaps in WASH, uh, according to a report which is about to be issues, issued again by WHO at the end of, of this year, again saying that, for instance, uh, one in four facilities lack basic water, one in ten have no sanitation, and one in three lack hand hygiene at the point of care. So what to do to prevent sepsis? So two years ago, we dedicated the hand hygiene campaign to this. We established that there are two uh, levels preventing uh, sepsis in the community and in healthcare and preventing infection or preventing the evolution of sepsis to, uh, of infection to sepsis. So preventing infection in the community is highly effective. Improved hand hygiene can cut the risk of diarrhea by at least 40%. Wash improvements can result in a 10% reduction of total burden of disease worldwide. And there are other interventions such as breastfeeding and vaccination, which can prevent sepsis and uh, infectious diseases uh, uh, significantly. Uh, in the healthcare facilities, we have already mentioned the effectiveness of IPC programs. And uh, before we talk about this into the details, it's important to uh, mention that once the infection is established, there are several factors that can be stopped or uh, really uh, fine-tuned to prevent the evolution to sepsis. So uh, improved compliance with sepsis performance bundles is associated with 25% risk reductions in sepsis mortality. Hospital and ICU length of stay decreased was decreased uh, 4% for every 10% increase in compliance with resuscitation bundles. And we have already talked about the uh, effectiveness uh, of uh, appropriate antibiotic use, especially in the first hour of sepsis evolution. So uh, the... Uh, Approaches of WHO to prevent uh, infections, in particular in healthcare, are related to the implementation of eight core components at the facility level and six of these at the national level, which are included in these guidelines where we have many recommendations in this context. Uh, out of this, we uh, identified uh, what are among these core components and indicators IPC minimum requirements, what needs to be in place at the minimum to ensure safety and prevention of the spread of AMR and of uh, uh, epidemics. Uh, we also developed many implementation resources that are available uh, and manuals. And also uh, the WASH program has proposed uh, uh, a strategy with eight steps uh, to make WASH interventions effective, uh, which are being implemented uh, by uh, more than 50 countries with uh, significant progress. Also, WHO and UNICEF launched a new hand hygiene initiative in the context of uh, the current uh, COVID uh, fight against COVID pandemic. 
And I would like to remind you that uh, implementing IPC at the point of care can only be done by using multimodal interventions in order to be effective. Multimodal means to integrate different approaches from infrastructure to training to monitoring to communications and engagement and institutional safety climate and in improvement of uh, patient safety and quality of care. This is reflected as an important example, which is uh, uh, relevant to sepsis, in the prevention of bloodstream infections, in particular those due to vascular catheters. On this slide, you can see many studies that implemented multimodal interventions, including bundles and checklists, and demonstrated a clear effectiveness in reducing incidence of uh, uh, bloodstream infections and sepsis. Uh, another important approach to reduce healthcare associated sepsis is to reduce surgical site infections. Uh, 30% of sepsis are sur of surgical origin. So the strategies to reduce these infections, in particular in uh, C-section, um, uh, post-C-section infections uh, is critical and WHO developed uh, a package to do so with many implementation tools. We also have guidelines in particular to reduce carbapenem resistant microorganisms, which are the most frequently uh, responsible for sepsis. And again, we have guidelines and implementation manuals and finally, we have uh, many training packages available on e-learning in particular, like the one that is displayed on the slide, as well as um, training that is related in particular to COVID-19 um, recently, but many other aspects of training that you can find on OpenWHO. Regarding training, next week we are going to issue a new uh, document which is uh, entitled Core Competencies for IPC Professionals, and I'm glad to announce this now today. And finally, WHO developed uh, a number of resources specific for infection prevention and control of COVID-19, which can be found on our website. With this, I would like to thank once again the organizers, in particular Manring, uh, Zik, and Corrad Reinhardt for their uh, support and collaboration with WHO and uh, my colleagues who are displayed on this slide. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Allegranzi. Um, you have taken us through um, infection prevention and control and how this links with sepsis and AMR. We have a few comments and a few questions, a few, a few comments and some questions. Um, one of our speakers, one of our participants has said um, that this, this is very clear, the presentation, but could you talk about a country or hospital example where multimodal approaches were implemented that resulted in a significant increase in hand hygiene and decrease in infections? That's a big one. So. Um, and the second one um, is about IPC practitioners, which I think you've more or less answered, that the absence of IPC practitioners 
um, in many countries, how has this affected the implementation of some of these programs that you've talked about? Okay, I'll try to give very short answers. So there are there are many many examples of multimodal strategies. Uh, just to cite one systematic review, which is cited in my slides, uh, identified 19 studies that have shown reduction of uh, healthcare-associated infections by implementing a hand hygiene multimodal strategy. We published in The Lancet Infectious Diseases about the implementation of our multimodal strategy for surgical site infection prevention uh, in African countries. There are really many examples, and especially in the core components uh, guidelines in the chapter related to multimodal strategies, you can find evidence up to date until 2015. We are currently starting the update of this systematic review, which we hope to issue next year. So there are many, many examples that this works. Uh, regarding IPC professionals, it's really, uh, I'm grateful to hear this question. Uh, our position, supported by, by many experts, is that, yes, we absolutely need specific IPC expertise to really make yeah, effective interventions and also really collaborate and engage with other disciplines to make IPC uh, effective and also to convince leadership and so on. Uh, IPC is a science, is a discipline, and it requires and deserves uh, really uh, a specialty and uh, a specific curriculum, which is available in a low number of countries we know and uh, through some international programs. WHO has a web page where all the programs uh, or courses or certificates in IPC are listed so that people can understand which ones can be uh, can be used. Uh, but of course, it's true that there is a need for curricula that are adapted also to low resource settings and uh, uh, and made affordable. And in addition, uh, we need to advocate for career pathways for these professionals, which are absent in many, many countries, including high-income countries. So this is a high priority for WHO. We will work as one organization with our regions and countries to really achieve significant improvements in IPC training and uh, uh, certificates in the next few years. Thank you for the question. Thank you. Um, as you were talking, quite a lot of other questions have come up, but I'm not sure we still have time. Um, maybe we'll just take one. Um, like, can you talk about how your group is working with other WHO colleagues on addressing sepsis and healthcare infections amongst mothers, newborns, and children? And I think that will be yeah. the last question. Yeah, yeah, that will be very fast as well, I hope. So we do. So at WHO, the work on sepsis is the result of a collaboration of more than 10 departments and divisions. And a very good example is the global report we are launching today, where you can find all these uh, departments listed. And also on our web pages, you can find the same. 
For maternal and neonatal, of course, we collaborate very closely. And I have to say that we are currently developing an, um, a training package for implementing infection prevention and control and wash in maternal and neonatal care. So hopefully that will be available next year. So this will be a tangible product. Uh, of collaboration, but in the Global Sepsis Report, you can find other good examples of this. Thank you for the question as well. Thank you very much, Professor Allegranzi. And now we will move very quickly to Kelly Ann Naylor, um, who will be talking to us about preventing infection and improving health in low and medium income countries, lessons learned from water sanitation and hygiene programs. Kelly is UNICEF's Associate Director for WASH, and she has over 19 years of experience in the WASH sector, managing urban, peri-urban, and rural water sanitation and hygiene programs in Central Africa, South Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, and North America. Since joining UNICEF in 2007, she has completed five missions in three regions. And prior to becoming the Global WASH Chief, Kelly has UNICEF's, was UNICEF's regional WASH advisor for West and Central Africa from 2014 to 2018, providing technical assistance and guidance for WASH programs in 24 countries, including the 2014 West Africa Ebola virus outbreak and Lake Chad Basin crisis. She has completed two missions in the DR Congo, where she supported the development and scale-up of the National Healthy Villages and Schools Program. She joined the Haiti country office in late 2010 as coordinator of the WASH technical subclusters for the earthquake and cholera response. She has served in Batikaloa and Kilinochi, Sri Lanka, with responsibility for the coordination of WASH subclusters and implementation of the emergency WASH response to conflict-affected uh, populations. Um, Proud to joining UNICEF, she started her career in Nicaragua, and she completed her undergraduate and master's degrees in civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, with a research focus on modeling human exposure to environmental pollutants. We welcome you, Kelly. Please, you can take the floor. Thank you very much, Dr. Winsola. And it's just such a pleasure to be here. And I sometimes wonder what a civil engineer is, is, is doing um, in these sorts of things, but I think this is exactly where we need to be. And, and it's just such a pleasure to be here today to really be joining forces um, with uh, colleagues like Benedetta to see how we can really bring together um, the work that we do in water sanitation and hygiene together um, with the work that health professionals um, are doing. So thank you um, very much for inviting um, myself and UNICEF um, to participate in this in this event. Um, so just really, um, I mean, directly following on um, from Benedetta's uh, presentation, um, she talked about a joint report that UNICEF and WHO had put out where we really looked at what is the situation of water sanitation and hygiene in healthcare facilities. Um, I'm I'm not going to go through all the statistics they're there, um, but we found overwhelming um, information that um, the most basic um, facilities for water, um, toilets, 
um, ability to manage waste, um, and the practice of hand hygiene were lacking in significant numbers of healthcare facilities um, around the world. And this, of course, was coming at a time, I think our very first landscape report um, prior to this, uh, this report came out um, in 2015 when we were working on the Ebola outbreak. And it really highlighted the challenges, particularly um, in low resource settings, to be able to put in place an effective infection prevention control when you don't have water, when there are not sanitation facilities, when there isn't waste management, and when hand hygiene is not being practiced. So um, this report that came out in 2018, um, or 2019, sorry, came out April last year, is going to be updated this year and is really helping us to be able to pinpoint and highlight where the needs um, are the greatest. Um, this is some other um, data that has come out in Bangladesh and looks very specifically um, around the issue of hand hygiene. And this, of course, has been a tremendous uh, focus um, as you know, one of the transmission pathways um, for many infections um, for keeping um, both uh, patients and health workers um, safe. So this work, as we gather for this conference today, I think we, we've we all been highlighted in Benedetta's presentation about the children, the mothers, and the patients who's lost their lives due to poor quality um, care. And I, we think that water, sanitation, and hygiene can be an important partner um, in this move on trying to achieve the health objectives. And when we look at the sustainable development goals and the targets, um, this is really where we see the ability to bring together water, sanitation, and hygiene together um, with the goals and objectives of the healthcare facilities. Um, so WASH, as, as a critical input um, to improving infection prevention control and outcomes, I mean, we know many of these different pathways that WASH can, 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 can contribute to this, um, whether it's through the risk of the nosocomical uh, diseases caused by human-to-human -human and human-to-surface contacts, whether it's related to quality of care and the dignity of patients to be comfortable and safe in healthcare facilities, as well as protecting women's and newborns during childbirth. Um, so this has also been, uh, water sanitation hygiene has also been identified as a critical um, preventive measure um, towards antibiotic resistance. Well, both um, directly by the transmission of infections, but also reducing the need to overuse antibiotics due to um, the transmission of, of infections. So the benefits of WASH are, are, um, are numerous um, and um, they are very much um, cross-cutting as we try to look at kind of improving overall um, quality of care in healthcare facilities. Um, but I wanted to focus today really on sharing a few concrete examples from work that we're doing at the country level. 
So UNICEF um, is currently uh, working on washing healthcare facilities in 82 countries. Um, as many of you probably know, um, the UN Secretary General issued a call to action on Washington healthcare facilities as part of his 2018 World Water Day speech. And that has built a lot of momentum um, and also led to the World Health Assembly resolution that um, has really kind of given a big push towards the work in Washington healthcare facilities. And last year, um, UNICEF reached directly 3,300, uh, over 3,300 facilities with basic um, WASH uh, services. So this is work that we're doing um, both in terms of um, helping countries to improve the enabling environment using the eight practical steps, which have been um, published in the report with WHO and UNICEF that went along with the data report um, and that now is part of the monitoring framework for the World Health Assembly resolution. And this really looks at how to build stronger health systems to be able to ensure water and sanitation and hygiene. So I want to go now into an example of a program um, that UNICEF has been working on with the Every Mother, Every Newborn Quality Improvement Standards. And this was implemented in 59 health facilities um, in six districts during the two-year period from 2016 to 2018. And this was done in Bangladesh, Ghana, and Tanzania. Um, this program really had three key components. It looked at improving the, the situation of, of infrastructure. And when we talk about infrastructure, we look at maintenance, um, construction and maintenance of water points, monitoring water quality, construction of toilets, construction of shower areas, putting in place hand washing equipment, waste segregation systems, burial pits for waste, um, incinerators. So all of these types of um, equipment or facilities that are required to make the physical environment um, safe and healthy. The second part of the program really focused on software components, and this looked at hand-washing practices, the implementation of waste management protocols, training of staff, um, you know, management measures like assigning an IPC focal point, developing behavior change communication, and an innovative approach on using a buddy system to monitor hand washing. The third component of this was really looking at a quarterly monitoring um, approach by independent research institutions to be able to um, really assess the functionality of the WASH infrastructures, but also the changes in behaviors and how these measures were being put in place. Um, and this provided an opportunity to really see how this kind of integrated approach um, could be put in place at the facility level. So a few key um, components um, came, came out of this. Um, I think first and, and foremost, importantly, was that client satisfaction um, was, was increased and that use of healthcare facilities improved. I think another finding, and, and this of course goes to 
um, show that it's not just about hardware, but that this approach of having these quarterly visits with super with supportive supervision and mentorship really helped tackle some of the practical issues at the facilities level um, and unlock bottlenecks to being able to make sure the use, the proper use and maintenance and management of the of the facilities. Um, I think these um, kinds of things also bring up the, the issue that there are still challenges that practices like hand washing um, continue to be done um, on a regular basis. And I think that's also um, always feedback to us that, you know, we need to continue to refine methods to make sure that we are advancing on those um, areas. Another example that we wanted to share was an example from Zambia. Um, and Zambia is a country where um, UNICEF, together with the Ministry of Health, implemented a package of interventions, um, which included reactivating infection prevention committees, um, on-site chlorine production and utilization, improved waste management, and promotion of hand washing at soap. Um, here, the focus was really on behavior change practices and um, that that um, interventions were put in place to uh, trigger behavior changes. This could be signals, um, footsteps, arrows, signs um, that help remind um, hand washing at the critical um, moments. Um, another component of this was really putting in place um, uh, high-level advocacy to try to provide more visibility for the link between WASH and IPC interventions. And I think particularly, again, coming back to low-resource settings where water sanitation and hygiene um, basics may not be in place, these are absolutely critical for um, being able to put in place an effective IPC response. A next example um, is, is a link that we've been making between WASH and energy. Um, and I think overall energy being um, an important input to many different types of improvements um, for healthcare facilities. It can also provide piped water supply um, rather than carrying uh, water in, in buckets um, from, uh, from, from, from hand pumps, um, which can also um, make and encourage um, infection prevention control measures at the point of care. Um, so this is another way that we're trying to look at linking um, improvements to facilities with improvements in the quality of care. Um, and then last but not least, I wanted to share um, an experience um, from the uh, Ebola response in Uganda. Um, this is, of course, also um, some examples, you know, from the West Africa um, Ebola outbreak, where interventions that were made during the public health um, a response to the outbreak um, have led to lasting um, uh, improvements in these healthcare facilities in terms of inf infection prevention control, um, whether it's on the side of uh, chlorine production or on the side of waste management. Um, I think the, we have um, been able to see that um, there's been positive improvements at the facility level um, once uh, these um, types of um, equipment has been uh, made available during the outbreak. So just 
just coming back to a few key messages. Um, we, um, it is very um, important that programs that are aimed at improving the quality of care to reduce mortality and morbidity should adequately reflect WASH and IPC and health plans and strategies. Um, you know, we still see many um, uh, health plans um, that don't um, have uh, complete data on the availability of water sanitation and hygiene facilities at the facility level. So this is absolutely a critical component um, of both the collection of data, but also making sure that these are part of national strategies and plans, costed, and that the adequate human resources and monitoring are in place to make sure that those investments um, really achieve the, the dividends. Um, I think, again, highlighting the issue that it's not just about infrastructure, but really continued need to um, uh, attention, improve um, hand washing practices, because um, this is obviously um, a critical um, uh, component, both for patient safety, but also for the safety of healthcare workers. Um, and is, you know, one of the most effective infection prevention practices that that um, we can all uh, do to improve um yeah, the, the conditions of healthcare workers and the quality of care for patients. So thank you um, very much. And um, I think it's yeah, really um, happy to, to be here and to be having this conversation between um, water sanitation and hygiene sector together with our health colleagues on this important issue. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kellyanne. Um, that was a very interesting um, talk and it showed and showed us very clearly the link between WASH and IPC and the difficulties we're going through in making sure countries recognize the, the importance of taking care of most of them. You do have a few questions, there are not too many. There's a question here uh, that many countries' regions have undertaken wastewater surveillance for COVID-19. Um, e.g. Finland and regions in Australia. And just last week, an epidemic was pre prevented at the U.S. University of Arizona with surveillance of dormitory waste. Shouldn't the WHO recommend this? CDRAP said good approach to AMR surveillance too. Um, that's one. Um, the other one is, about, um, is also from the same person. Now, what of the cube type of approach to contamination in maternity wards, that even isolated tents could cut down on HII responsible for diseases and death in LMICs. Um, otherwise, thank you for a good uh, WHO push for WASH. So I don't know if you understand those. Great. Yeah, I don't think, thanks so much for those questions. And um, I think on the on the wastewater surveillance, so thank you very much. And this has, I think, been a, an issue of quite a lot of, um, of recent uh, debate um, in the scientific community. I think while um, it's been identified that there are virus fragments in um, wastewater, um, the, the, the current understanding that I had, um, and again, I'm from UNICEF, so I will defer to the WHO colleagues on the latest um, standards on this. Um, but I did understand that there was a, there, that it was yet to show whether or not um, there could be transmission. 
um, from uh, wastewater. So while it could be used as a monitoring tool, it wasn't at this stage being seen as a trans a transmission pathway. Um, but I would, and um, perhaps um, I can share, there's a link to um, the latest uh, guidance on water sanitation and hygiene and waste um, for COVID-19, which is on the WHO website. And I know that it's been updated recently um, with uh, more um, latest information on, on this wastewater question. So I don't um, in any way want to, um, you know, spread misinformation. So I would suggest to go directly to that latest guidance um, on this uh, specific issue. Um, so thank, thank you. you very much. Um, we have two direct questions. What is the role of governments in all the mess behind lack of wash in LMICs as donor funds are poured in the name of health? And can you tell us the percentage of health facilities in Bangladesh that lack toilet facilities? Great. Thank you very much. I think the question on yeah, and the role of governments is a very is a very important one. And I think what we see in in the water and sanitation sector is is that it is very multi-sectoral because you know on one hand we have water and sanitation facilities that serve communities, but then we also have the water and sanitation um, and hygiene practices inside of healthcare facilities and schools. So I think. You know, first and foremost, I think when we see these, um, you know, the gaps that we have um, in both the, the coverage of water and sanitation in communities and the coverage in facilities, um, I think often um, it's there's there's issues of fragmentation and accountability um, around how to make sure that we have more integrated approaches um, towards making sure that there is a continuity of water and sanitation services. Um, in households, healthcare facilities, and and schools. So I think first and foremost, it's a question of coordination. Um, I think secondly, it is an issue of, um, of, of of data and understanding the problem. And you know, the very first time that we had data available on the situation of Western healthcare facilities for a substantive numbers of countries was last year. Um, so this is a problem, well, I think it's shown up and, and for many of us who have been involved in responding to public health outbreaks, whether they're cholera outbreaks, Ebola outbreaks, the current COVID outbreak, you see it happening at the facility level, but you haven't really seen the scale and the scope of the problem. And so these reports that we've been putting out um, that do have country level data and, and coming to the question on Bangladesh, we can share the, the link to the report, which can give you all the details um, specifically on Bangladesh. Um, but it's it's really raised quite a lot of visibility about about this challenge, um, and we're currently in the process of developing an investment case together with UNICEF, WHO, um, and uh, the World Bank um, to really look at what the resource needs would be to get water and sanitation facilities um, up to the standards um, for all uh, healthcare facilities. So these are some things that are coming soon, but it does it does really require um, a systems approach um, and not just yeah. a facilities by facilities. Okay. Thank you. But 
Thank you very much, uh, Kelly. And in the words of one of the participants who says, Dear Kelly, thanks a lot for the interesting presentation. IPC wash is a marriage made from heaven that nobody can separate. <laughs> so keep working. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for the marriage proposal. I really appreciate it. It really made my day. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So, um, so we will now go to um, the next speaker. Um, this is um, Dr. Evangelos. I hope I'm pronouncing your name well. Giamarelos. Bubulis, um, who's a professor, uh, thank you, <laughs> who is a professor of internal medicine and infectious diseases at the medical school of the National and Capodistrian University of Athens since 2018. He was trained in the immunology of infections at the Department of Internal Medicine and Infectious Diseases of Radwood University in the Netherlands. In 2012 and 2013, he served as guest professor of the Department of Critical Care Medicine of Jena University Hospital in Germany. His main research contribution is immunomodulation in sepsis and in autoinflammatory disorders for which he was awarded the Young Investigator Research Award by the European Society of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. He has 379 publications in its international peer-reviewed journals with 15,440 citations and an H index of 64. He has contributed in the development of clarithromycin for immunomodulatory treatment of septic shock, the recognition of hydrogenitis superativa as an autoinflammatory disorder and the licensing of adalimumab for treatment of um, 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 sepsis. He is chairing the Hellenic Sepsis Study Group. He currently serves as the president of the European Shock Society and the chair of the European Sepsis Alliance. Since the start of the COVID pandemic, he was the first to publish the complex immune dysregulation of severe patients, and he is running four clinical trials on treatment and vaccination. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for your presentation and for your kind words. And uh, I would like to introduce today uh, a new window of hope for uh, the prevention of COVID-19 and respiratory infections. And I believe that the importance of uh, our findings that have uh, just one week now been published uh, in Cell uh, are very important, taking also into consideration of one highlight that uh, has appeared today, early in the morning, in the internet, about a severe adverse event of a patient being vaccinated by one of the new underdevelopment vaccines to prevent COVID-19. After showing you my conflict of interest disclosure, I would like to show you that uh, already from the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, there was uh, an idea that BCG can be used in order to prevent COVID-19. And then the question comes, how this is possible? So before jumping into the surprising assumption of many people around the world, how is it possible for BCG that actually the idea is to be used for the prevention of tuberculosis, that this can be used for the prevention of a respiratory viral infection? I would like first to let you know that this concept is being shared by great, great many people out there 
And there are already 11 ongoing randomized clinical trials in order to study the use of BCG, BCG vaccine in order to prevent COVID-19. How now is this possible for this to be the situation? Allow me to introduce you now to the concept of trained immunity. What trained immunity means? This means that one our innate immune system comes across a vaccine or an antigen that has a low virulence. This develops, but however, not all antigens and not all vaccines are able to develop them. When at the second step, we come across an infection which is secondary, which is completely different than the previous one, we are able to develop very strong innate immune reactions and responses. That means a response which is coming from our tissue macrophages in order to eliminate and to contain the secondary infection. However, in order for this to be done, the antigen that is used for vaccination should be able to induce metabolic and epigenetic changes that allow this to happen. From October 2017 until August 2020, we ran a randomized clinical trial with the acronym ACTIVATE. The idea of the trial is to vaccinate elderly, that means aged 16 or more, and we randomized them to get single shot of vaccine with placebo or BCG. At the end of March 2020, when 150 of our patients from the total of 188 who were vaccinated have completed one year of follow-up in the study, we decided to go for an interim analysis because it was an urgent need, an urgent need to the colonists of the ongoing 11 trials with BCG about what can be the frame of safety of the BCG vaccine. At that time point, we analyzed for the predefined primary study endpoint, and the predefined primary study endpoint was the time to first new infection. You see the curve of the time to new infection. In blue are the 78 patients allocated to placebo vaccination. In red are the 72 patients allocated to BCG vaccination. The benefit coming from BCG vaccination is evident. And Cox regression analysis showed that the most of the benefit was for patients with a history of coronary heart disease, uh, sorry, of uh, chronic renal disease, and for patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And then somebody may ask, well, the title of the slide is the time to first new infection, but which are the infections against which BCG provided most of benefit? This is the meta-analysis of the time of, of infections within the trial, and you can see that most of benefit is for all respiratory infections and mainly for respiratory infections of probable 
viral origin. And the question is, what is the mechanism behind the benefit coming from BCG vaccination? In a small subsets of patients who were enrolled, our baseline and three months after vaccination, either with placebo or BCG, we isolated their peripheral mononuclear cells and we stimulated them and we assessed their potential for the production of TNF, Al1-beta, and IL-10. It is obvious that post-vaccination, these monocytes were far more potent for cytokine production, and this means a better ability to contain the infection. However, it's not only their ability for better cytokine production. It is also their ability because there are epigenetic changes in the genes encoding for pro-inflammatory cytokines. And you see that these changes are far pronounced in the BCG treatment arm compared to the placebo-vaccinated patients. And then somebody may ask, what is the safety profile of BCG vaccination? Much to our surprise, you see that our patients were actually protected. The rate of at least one serious adverse event was 38.5% in the placebo group, and that was reduced to 23.6% if there was a trend for statistical significance. And I want to emphasize here that the infectious diseases necessitating hospitalization or leading to death are subtracted from this table. In other terms, there is an overall benefit coming from BCG vaccination. We are not the only ones who see BCG as a rise in hope against COVID-19. There are three cohorts of patients, and with them also comparators. Vaccinated, either with BCG or being unvaccinated, they were followed up. Vaccination took place in November and December 2019, that means before the advent of COVID-19, and upon the advent of COVID-19, they were followed up for clinical signs compatible with COVID-19. The length of sickness is the most striking finding of COVID-19, the most persistent. And you see that this went down from 31, 1% of controls to 21% of BCG vaccinated individuals. We are running now in Greece in 15 study sites a randomized clinical trial. The acronym now is ACTIVATE2, where male or females aged 50 or more with comorbidities, mainly coronary heart disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and or Johnson's comorbidity index more than three negative for immunoglobulins against SARS-CoV-2 and with a skin tuberculin test diameter less than 10 millimeters, they are randomized to placebo or BCG vaccination and they are followed up for symptoms and for serology compatible with COVID-19. So an elderly monocyte, once being vaccinated by BCG, 
becomes healthy again through epigenetic modifications. And this means less viral infection, a decrease of the overall incidence of all respiratory infections without any adverse events. I strongly believe that this is a very important window of hope for against the pandemic that we are experiencing nowadays. Thank you very much for this kind invitation. I'm looking forward to any interaction and any discussion. Thank you very much, um, Prof, for that interesting um, presentation. There are a few questions here that I, I want to bring up. Um, th there's a comment here that says, um, there are countries where the BCG vaccination in children is almost 100%, but they're still having a high COVID-19 case and death rate. What is the explanation for that? So, uh, BCG vaccination that is taking place during early childhood is to protect long-term for tuberculosis. Here, what I'm presenting is a short-term benefit which lasts for one, probably two years, one by definition, probably two years as well, against non-specific antigenic epidemics. So being vaccinated at childhood does not provide any benefit after 20 or 30 years against other respiratory pathogens. If we want to use BCG against COVID-19, the population even those who have been vaccinated when they were children, they need to be revaccinated. Okay, a lot of the questions are actually around BCG, and um, there's one here that says, um, "Does does just want to know, does BCG really prevent tuberculosis, and what age is limited? What is the age limit of the BCG vaccines?" There is actually no age limit. And the reason is because you see here how safe this vaccination is. The limitations of vaccinations are coming from a probable risk for uh, coming from vaccination. The only people who should not be vaccinated by BCG are those who are getting anti-TNF, anti-cytokine drugs, and those who have hematologic malignancies. All the other people may be vaccinated. Okay. Um, one more question um, from someone who says, um, is BCG, could BCG be the reason in Kenya that we have resisted COVID-19 quite a bit? We have had a mild outbreak, which came under control on its own. There is a recent publication at PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science of the United States of America, showing that the infection by COVID-19 was much milder among BCG-vaccinated countries. So, uh, however, what the authors do not really provide is the time frame between uh, the vaccination, how all, uh, what time in the past and how many years have lapsed since uh, these populations have been vaccinated. However, this really corroborates what uh, is being asked right now. Okay, thank you. And I think someone has something that's the opposite, and then we'll go on to another case. 
Um, he says in Pakistan, everyone is BCG vaccinated, but we have a lot of COVID cases. I told you uh, what is important is not to refer to vaccination once in childhood. If someone has been vaccinated when he was a child and now he's 50 years old, there is protection only against tuberculosis, but not protection against other respiratory pathogens. So if we want to use BCG for protection against COVID-19, population should be revaccinated. Okay. I think that's now very clear. Thank you very much. I um, thank you very much for this invitation. Thank you. Thank you very much for that interesting. And I think you've set up a lot of questions um, um, for people. So now I'm going to invite our last speaker, um, and that is Dr. Mervyn Murr, um, who currently presides as a principal specialist at the Charlotte Megzeki Johannesburg Academic Hospital, Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. He also serves as the clinical head of the adult multidisciplinary intensive care unit at the, um, at the at Charlotte Magzeki Johannesburg Academic Hospital. He's a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians in the UK, a fellow of the College of Chess Physicians in the United States, amongst many. He's involved in various aspects of clinical research, is a hands-on clinician, and has participated in more than 950 lectures and presentations. He's a sought-after presenter, both nationally and internationally. He's a past president of the Critical Care Society of Southern Africa and was the secretary for 17 years and is a current chairperson of the Global Intensive Care Working Group of the Euro European Society of Intensive Care Medicine and has been integrally involved in their Live Sepsis project. He's also an invited member of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, United States of America, and is currently addressing sepsis in developing countries. In 2018, he was invited to become a panel member of the next International Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, as well as be a contributor to the new International Mucomycosis Guidelines. He serves as a council member of the recently formed African Sepsis Alliance. He has received numerous awards. I couldn't bring them all up, including the Surgeon General Commendation Award, and the Sam Naidu Award for the Best Clinician, which is conferred by the Southern African Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis. Most re recently, he was the first recipient of the Hilda Dapno Jacobson Award, which is awarded to the most competent, caring, and capable doctor in the profession, irrespective of field of interest, amongst many others. Additionally, he has a wide array of interests outside of medicine. Mevin will be presenting to us today, Preventing Sepsis and AML in ICU Patients. Welcome, Mervyn, and thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. And a gracious thanks to the organizers for the invitation to participate in this wonderful meeting. I'm going to be addressing aspects of antimicrobial resistance and appropriate antimicrobial use in critically ill patients. And uh, in the time frame that we have, really two independent topics, but we're going to try and link them. 
these are my disclosures, and we're going to address many aspects of antimicrobial care uh, and uh, start off by looking at various elements that are pertinent to antimicrobial resistance. So as has been shared already within the context of this forum, infections and infectious diseases remain a very important and leading cause of morbidity and mortality around the world. And to go back and just put things into a nutshell, approximately 30,000 lives per day are lost around the world related to sepsis. If we look at the intensive care unit, those patients who in fact have an infection have a mortality twofold as high as non-infected patients. And something that I've in fact promulgated for a long, long time now, antimicrobials. If we look at all medications that are prescribed are the most poorly prescribed. Because of that, we see tons of unnecessary costs, side effects, and importantly, the emergence of resistant microorganisms and the failure to treat infections. Now, we should have taken heed 75 years ago when in 1945, Sir Alexander Fleming, in his acceptance Nobel Prize lecture, had the following to say, it's not difficult to make microbes resistant to penicillin by exposing them to concentrations not sufficient to kill them. And really, over the ensuing decades, we haven't taken sufficient heed of that particular comment that was told to us right at the outset. And so certainly in the intensive care world and critically ill patients, we're returning to the pre-antibiotic era with lots of multi and extremely drug-resistant pathogens. This burden of antimicrobial resistance is enormously significant. If we look at just some global statistics, tens of thousands of deaths per year, millions of extra hospital days, and overall societal costs that are actually mind-boggling that run into millions of dollars in euro. And if we don't get our act together fairly quickly and focus on what really needs to be done despite everything that is out there, we are going to be facing a massive problem because it is currently estimated that we may be dealing with up to 10 million cases of antimicrobial resistance by 2050, with the current figure of around about 700,000 cases. And that will mean one person dies every three seconds from antimicrobial resistance. To put that into perspective, currently, around about 8.2 million people die from malignancy. So this would exceed those numbers. And this will affect every content continent on the globe, uh, with Asia and Africa really bearing the brunt. So what are these problem pathogens? And this was described uh, just over a decade ago as the so-called escape organisms, nice acronym to describe the different pathogens. And very soon thereafter, in fact, the K was replaced with the C to incorporate Clostridium difficile, not Clostridium difficile, and the E replaced the Enterobacter with Enterobacteriaceae, which in fact have also been renamed and are called Enterobacterales currently. And this further has been uh, reviewed, and in fact it is now suggested when we talk about these problematic pathogens and the escape pathogens, we should talk about escape triple C, with the triple C incorporating uh, C. difficile candida and carbapenem resistant. Uh, Enterobacteriales, um, and that last E includes two very, very important groups of pathogens, the ESBL-producing pathogens and the carbapenem-producing pathogens.
So what has happened over the last several years? If we look at what is going on around the globe, if we look at gram-positive pathogens, uh, there's been some change in some areas, escalations of Staph aureus, particularly methicillin resistant in other areas, in fact, gone down. Entrococcus species gone up and gram negatives, a huge problem with Enterobacterales, Pseudomonas, Acinetobacter species with very, very significant uh, impact. We look at current resistance rates and major pathogens around the world and the, the figures that are represented, in fact, come from a, a multitude of sources, including the WHO, CDC, the EARSnet, uh, the INEC groups, and the Chinet uh, research survey groups. And we will see that we are dealing with very large percentages of, of uh, microorganisms that are resistant, the ESBLs, the carbapenem producing Enterobacteriaceae, and MRSA, and these are really global problems. If we take that map and put it into some form of graphic, we can see E. coli resistant to third generation cephalosporins and fluoroquinolones in up to 96% of cases that are documented in some regions of the world and resistance to carbapenems, particularly Klebsiella uh, pneumonia, uh, very significant, up to 68% in the European region, and then varying rates for MRSA with figures as high as 90% in some areas of the Americas. We focus very dominantly on bacteria, but we shouldn't forget that other pathogens also are evolving and resistance issues are emerging. And fungi, in fact, are one of those groups. And this was, in fact, um, a commentary that, that was written uh, and put together. And in fact, I entitled it, Lest We Forget, Fungi Flourishing and Fatal in Man, and Now the Fear of Resistance. We have emerging candida species, particularly non-albicans candida species that are resistant to azoles and some of them to echinocandins now. And in fact, there are multi-drug resistant candida species like candida auris that are emerging. Aspergillus species, similarly with azole resistance, a major concern. And then there are many different infections that in fact make up a very significant proportion of all the infections and potentially sepsis that we see around the globe, tuberculosis, malaria, HIV and influenza, that we should not forget about when it comes to antimicrobial resistance. So let's go back and focus on the bacteria and, and on antibiotics. And one of the really pertinent commentaries that has come out in the last decade or so, in fact, came from Johan Neuven in Clinical Infectious Diseases. And I think he was pretty spot on with what he had to say. The major reason that antibiotics are prescribed inappropriately driving these, this resistance is that there's a lack of knowledge about infectious diseases and antimicrobial therapy. And healthcare workers are afraid not to prescribe antibiotics. And so I think if we take a moment to digest that, nothing in life needs to be feared. What needs to happen is that we actually have to understand issues. And in fact, this was a sentiment put forward by Marie Curie, who in fact taught us a lot about imaging. 
And so when we, in fact, prescribe antibiotics, it's imperative to have an understanding of the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic principles. That is how the antibiotic gets into the body, and once it's in the body, what its effects are. And if we want to, in fact, prescribe suitably so that we can achieve complete bacterial eradication and limit the risk of resistance, we have to have an understanding of the so-called PK and PD because that helps us to determine how we can best and optimally prescribe antibiotics. In a nutshell, three distinct groups of antibiotics are recognized, time-dependent killers, concentration-dependent killers, and those that have aspects of both. And it's important to go back and do a very brief lesson in pharmacology to understand these elements, otherwise it will not be feasible to effectively prescribe antibiotics to adequately deal with infections and limit resistance. So if we have a look at the concentration-dependent killers with this graphic with the vertical axis representing con concentration and the horizontal one time, and the MRC shown in the dashed line here, concentration-dependent killers exemplified by the amino glycosides, metronidazole, daptomycin, are other examples. The important issue there is that peak concentration determines killing activity. And the greater the antibiotic concentration you are able to achieve above the MIC, the greater the killing will be. And so it is important, and we now know that we want to achieve values at least tenfold the MIC if we want to have successful outcomes and limit resistance. For time-dependent antibiotics, exemplified by the beta-lactams and the carbapenems, agents like clindamycin and the older macrolides, time above the MRC. You've got to be above the MRC. And in 2020, we'd like to achieve virtually 100% of time above the MRC, at least fourfold above the MRC, if we want to have successful outcomes and limit resistance. And for the agents that exemplify elements of both, such as the fluoroquinolones, azithromycin, tigercycline, glycopeptides, and so on, we want to look at the AUC over MRC value, and that value should be 120 or more. And that is this area under the curve divided by the MIC. So that's quite a lot to digest in a small period of time. And let's just look at the elements and some take-home messages. If we're talking about concentration-dependent killers, we want to achieve a peak concentration that is maximal, at least tenfold above the MRC, and we talk of a peak to MRC ratio. If we're talking time-dependent killers, we want to be above the MRC, at least fourfold above the MRC, 100% of the time. The older teaching, we were told that carbapenems 40% of the time, penicillins 50%, and kephalosporin 60 to 70% really no longer holds true. And if we have agents that exemplify elements of both of those issues, we want a value of greater than 120 for efficacy. And so if we use pharmacokinetics and dynamics, we can optimize bacterial killing, we can knock out the bugs, we will limit resistance because dead bugs, in fact, don't mutate. Can't kill the same bug twice. Let's move on to critically ill patients, and they represent a unique population. They're very different to the ambulant patients that most antibiotics were registered for. And in fact, this commentary, which was recently 
recently published and in two pages really puts together most of one, what one needs to know in the context of this entire topic was, I think, very aptly labelled antibiotic administration in the critically ill in need of intensive care. In fact, we need to go back and look at what we, in fact, are doing so we can optimise things appropriately. And patients who critically ill have increased volumes of distribution, increased cardiac outputs and hepatic and renal flows, and hence increased clearances. Protein levels are low, and so antibiotics that are highly protein-bound become free and are passed out in the urine. And very often these patients land up requiring renal support, and that renal support is not a uniform issue. There are differing clearance rates, so you cannot predict the effects. So if we have a look at this graphic exemplifying sepsis in critically ill patients and focus on the left-hand side of the graphic, if we have septic patients who are critically ill, you have increased cardiac output, leaky capillaries and, and or altered protein binding. As a consequence, you have increased clearances and volumes of distributions low plasma concentrations of the antibiotic, and if we do not dose and take this into account correctly, we will, in fact, confer suboptimal therapy, potential failure of therapy, potential poor outcome, and potential development of resistance. Now, further concepts have come forward in the last couple of years, and one of the very important ones is so-called augmented renal clearance. And in critically ill patients, we now, in fact, understand that there's enhanced renal elimination of circulating solutes, and that includes antibiotics. And in a subgroup of these individuals, these clearances go to very high levels. The definition is a level greater than 130 mils per minute, per 1.73 meters squared. And it is common. It occurs in up to 85% of patients. And again, if we are not cognizant of this, we will get rid of renally eliminated antibiotics, have suboptimal antibiotic concentrations, fail therapy, and in fact drive resistance. We also now know who's at risk for augmented renal clearance, and it's younger people, trauma, post-surgical patients, patients with sepsis, hemoncology patients, burn patients, pregnant patients, and those who have lower severity scores. And there is now evidence that this lasts for at least up to a week in severely ill patients. So this concept of augmented renal clearance, absolutely paramount to understand how we should, in fact, be dosing and consider elements when we do, do dose critically ill patients. And so very frequently one is asked, you know, what are these so-called pharmacokinetic and dynamic issues and differences in critically ill patients got to do with resistance at all? Isn't it a microbial issue altogether? And the answer is absolutely no. The microbes are very important, but dosing has a lot to do with antimicrobial resistance because low exposure to antibiotics, in fact, facilitates or enables the development of resistance. There are various ways that we can, in fact, address it. Um, and in the uh, reference that I alluded to earlier on, we've, in fact, supplied some ways that we can, in fact, do that by giving loading doses, dosing more frequently uh, if one has access to uh, therapeutic drug monitoring, invoking that and considering continuous and extended infusions. So how should we administer antimicrobials and antibiotics and particularly optimally. And I'm going to look at the beta-lactams and carbapenems. And traditionally, 
the, the ways that we've administered have been orally or via intermittent injection. And there's been a focus over the last couple of years looking at extended infusions, in other words, over three to four hours, or continuous infusions over the entire daily interval. And when we talk about extended and continuous infusions, people have often referred to both of those as prolonged infusions. Uh, and we should always precede those, in fact, with a bolus dose. Do these make a difference? And there's been a lot of controversy, but the very latest meta-analysis and systematic review has concluded that prolonged infusions are associated with lower all-cause mortality. Is this new data? And in fact, for those who have an interest in this, if you went back close to 70 years ago, Harry Eagle, in fact, described something similar in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I'll just point out the elements that he, that he alluded to. The most rapidly effective form of treatment is one that provides antibiotic continuously in excess of the effective level so that both the drug and the host defenses are continuously operative. What about duration? And in a nutshell, no one really needs antibiotics for more than seven days and perhaps even shorter durations. Anything beyond results in resistance and superinfection and, resisted, uh, and resistant organisms. Of course, in some conditions, more protracted therapies required infective endocarditis, deep-seated bone and joint infections, pneumocystis, gerevechia, pneumonia, patients who neutropenic, those who candidemic, and those who have staph aureus infections. And so if I had to confer and share with you what, in fact, we should be doing, looking at years of literature and decades of trials in one particular slide for community-acquired pneumonia, at least five days, continue for 72 hours after patients a febrile, for HAPS and VAPS, seven to eight days, longer for non-fermenting gram-negative bacilli, in other words, pseudomonas and acinetobacters, run about 10 days, bloodstream infections, five to seven days, more than adequate. If it's a staph aureus, 14 days if uncomplicated and longer if complicated. For intra-abdominal infections, imperative to have adequate source control, but you only need 47 days. Excellent study by Sawyer. And for urinary tract infections, three to seven days. And that is across the spectrum from uncomplicated to acute pyelonephritis. Years and years and years of literature in a few minutes. One or more agents, generally monotherapy, consider dual therapy at the outset in septic shock, where pseudomonas may be a consideration, you're not aware of your local susceptibilities, for severe community-acquired pneumonia, where one's using beta-lactam and macrolide combinations, for carbapenem-producing enterobacteriaceae, two and sometimes more agents, and for various other conditions, such as infective endocarditis and in neutropenia. What are the pitfalls briefly? And it's treatment of non-infectious diseases with antibiotics. Treatment of colonization, because you culture a bug, if the patient doesn't manifest the features of sepsis, they don't need an antibiotic. It's overuse of combination therapy. And the use of antibiotic for persistent fevers. Go back and use that wonderful clinical acumen that we all were taught and reassess the patient and it's inadequate source control. Look in your surgical patients whether they don't need to go back and have drainage and debris de mar. The solution to the pollution is dilution and pull out uh, foreign bodies and, and devices that are not necessary and evaluate your patients on a daily basis. 
prophylaxis, all I'm going to say is you need one dose. And so if we look in summary at interventions to address antimicrobial resistance in the ICU, we need to enforce infection control practices, develop antimicrobial stewardship programs, and hand hygiene has been addressed very uh, uh, eloquently earlier on. Look at how we dose antibiotics and review this on a daily basis. And in fact, over the last several years, we've been formulating an issue where in a single template, every single issue that is pertinent to the application, administration, and correct use of antibiotics, and that covers the pillars of antimicrobial stewardship. In other words, appropriate antimicrobial prescription together with infection prevention control practices uh, has been put together. This will be put into some formalized format in a short while, and it's just a couple of Ds. And if you remember just some of them, you will know more about antibiotic therapy and what we should be doing uh, than currently appears to be prevalent out there. Just to give you an example, we've spoken about deliveries, administration. Delay would be timing, getting in early. Uh, devices would be source control. Descriptive diagrams or elements that are very useful where literacy may not be an issue and there's direction for dialysis. So I really think we have a template where in the future we can actually go out and in a pragmatic, practical fashion, uh, in fact, share elements that everyone will know what they need to. So in conclusion, we're really dealing with a massive problem when we talk about antimicrobial resistance. Injudicious antimicrobial use is a massive problem. We need to, in fact, uh, enhance and, and uh, improve those elements. We're seeing lots of emerging pathogens that are problematic. We do possibly have something that could help with the Ds. And I'd like to advocate all of you to continue with insistence and persistence to fight against resistance. That's just a summary of what we've discussed. And I'd like to finish off this session and perhaps the course of what has been a day for me with some wisdom from a wonderful human being, uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, whom, uh, when I think history is written, will go down perhaps as the greatest statesman that did live. And he had the following to say, and I think we should take cognizance of that. It's in your hands to make a difference. And the rest of the quotation is finished off, to make this world a better place for all. So on that note, and to finish off very briefly with the Ds, I'd like to appeal to all the dedicated delegates, dispensers, doctors, dignitaries, developers, distributors, and dealers, in other words, the farm industry, to go out and disseminate this information. And humble and gracious thanks for the opportunity to share these elements with you. Thank you very much, Dr. Murr. That was brilliant. Um, but before I go into uh, questions, um, the next session is about starting. And if there are people who want to join it, you will have to leave now so that you can join the other one. Um, what I have here are lots of talk on how great this presentation is. But we have a few questions. Um, um, yes. This person says, yes, fungi, we need to pay a lot more attention to invasive fungal infe infections, especially with the uh, increasing reports of resistance. And there's a need to improve diagnostic capacity in LMICs. So how do we increase awareness and diagnostic capabilities? And what, what have you found in your, in your work? Um, that's, that's the first question. 
Um, do you want to answer that or should I ask you a second one? No, th thank you very, very much. And uh, fun fungi is something I'm, I, I actually am crazy about, a particular candida. And I think the diagnostic elements, if you have a look at virtually every every week, there's another new editorial commentary um, uh, question, um, paper art questioning, how do we make a diagnosis of invasive candidiasis? And in fact, I don't think it's that difficult. I think it's about a compilation of issues. And that compilation includes good clinical acumen, taking into account the relevant risk factors uh, that are pertinent. It should also, uh, and, and that is where in low middle income class countries where issues are, are hugely problematic in terms of diagnostic capabilities in some areas, that goes a long way. The patients who are at greatest risk who are critically ill are those that are severely ill, those with invasive devices, those that have gastrointestinal problems, those that are uh, immunocompromised, and those that have had prior antibiotic administration. So, I, in fact, I call those the big five coming from Africa. Those are the big five risk factors. Then we need to, in fact, look at what our best yield is. So even if there isn't fancy laboratory technology available, the amount of blood that is taken, if you suspect that a patient may have an invasive candidal infection, you need to, in an adult patient, take at least 60 moles of blood. Uh, and you don't need anaerobic bottles if you want to get your best yield. And I'm sure many of the audience have heard about the missing 50% because blood cultures are not a great way. There are various scoring systems that have been advocated in non-neutropenic patients that help one to determine or certainly exclude in the so-called Leon score, which looks at a variety of different, very simple bedside issues, just four elements. And you can get a simple score. If it's less than three, you can virtually exclude invasive candidiasis. And then there are very useful technologies, the beta-D-glucan um, in, in the first world, nanotechnology has been utilized, uh, the T2MR, uh, and uh, these, in fact, can, can tell you, uh, uh, in conjunction with the elements that I've mentioned, give you a high index of suspicion. And in the coming months, there will be a point of care beta-D-glucan test, which I think will be useful. And the beta-D-glucan's best issue is its negative predictive value. So if it's negative, you can exclude candida. Uh, and then finally, <clears throat> uh, imaging is also very helpful, particularly in neutropenic patients, immunocompromised patients, very, very simple ultrasounds that anyone can do. You don't need major training. If you're worried about chronic hepatosplenic candidiasis, which can be a difficult diagnosis, there are pathognomonic issues. So I think a lot can be done, and I think too much has been made of the inability to make a diagnosis, certainly of candida. Uh, I think if we use a compilation of issues, and it's an entity I've, I've spoken about before, demystifying the diagnosis, we can go a long way to addressing that issue. Aspergillus a little bit uh, more difficult, um, but there are ways uh, and, and risk factors are very relevant there as well. Thank you very much. You still have a few questions, um, which I think we will try and answer if you can. Um, as briefly as possible, otherwise we're not leaving. Um, Acinetobacter bovenia and Klebsiella and Enterobacteria uh, bacteriaceae in IC is almost a death sentence in LMICs because they show resistance to all antibiotics that we have. 
How how would you suggest treating them? Uh, thank you. It's an excellent question. Um, I'm I'm the eternal optimist, and I, I run an intensive care in a low middle income class country. And so when I look at issues, I always try and be pragmatic. It's the one entity where combination therapy is required. So if we're looking at carbapenem producing enterobacteriaceae, uh, and I'll give you fairly verbatim issues that I think are now widely accepted in terms of what we should be doing. Uh, we would use combinations of colistin and a carbapenem, provided the MRC, if it is available, is less than or equal to eight, with or without nemonoglycoside, or tigercycline, we don't really have access to phosphomycin, but that is an option as well. If it is a so-called KPC or OXA48, which we see a lot of in Southern Africa, um, we would consider as well ketazidine abibactam if it is available. For um, uh, the uh, acinetobacters, um, what we're currently using there is a combination of colistin and tigercycline. And the dosing is very, very important. You can use carbapenems and monoglycosides uh, as well. Um, and again, it's combination therapy. The colistin needs to be dosed correctly because it takes time to get to steady state. So you've got to give an upfront dose of 12 million units and we follow with 4.5 million units twice daily or 3 million units three times a day. So 12 million units upfront, 9 million units uh, to follow with normal renal function. If there's impaired renal function, we dose adjust and any of the delegates most welcome to be in touch with, with me and I'm, I'm very happy to share um, what we would do in, in, in those sort of scenarios. And then for um, uh, extremely drug-resistant Pseudomonas aeruginosa, um, which is also an emerging issue, uh, calistinomonoglycosides carbapenem uh, combinations um, is generally what we use. And if there is excess, um, uh, ceftolazone, tazobactam, uh, or keptazidine abibactam are very useful options, um, but uh, not if there's a so-called metallo betalactamase producing pseudomonas. In that setting of the newer agents, the septolazone tazobactam is better pseudomonal activity. So if that is all taken in, I've just effectively given another <laughs> lecture and um, put into perspective what I think should be done, um, pretty much inferencing everything that is currently in the literature. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mervyn. Um, there's a specific question that I'd like to ask um, that, well, I, that we have here. Um, if you had to treat infective endocarditis with dual antibiotics and you don't have a culture, what will be the combination of choice? So it does depend on, on the background of, of the patient. Um, you know, uh, is this someone directly from the community with previous rheumatic disease and uh, perhaps inappropriate um, uh, oral hygiene? Is it an older individual um, who's had lower GRT symptoms uh, because the pathogens are somewhat different? Or is it an intravenous drug abuser? And we see, in fact, in my domain, quite a lot of intravenous drug abuse and staph aureus and all sorts of pathogens. But as a rule of thumb, a beta-lactam and an amanoglycoside with the amanoglycoside for two weeks, and then we drop that. If you still do not uh, have a pathogen and you are worried about staph, uh, then cloxacillin uh, or um, kefazolin would be useful entities for individuals who've come from the community. 
And remember, culture-negative endocarditis always consider fungi, consider Q fever, and consider the so-called HACEC group of organisms. If you have a laboratory, these are fastidious organisms that require longer durations of plating. Um, otherwise, you miss them. So hopefully, in a nutshell, that gives you an entity. And then target your therapy uh, against activity markers, cessation of constitutional symptoms, and in general, we're looking at four to six weeks of therapy. There are definitive indications for surgery as well, um, which, once again, I'd be happy to share if anyone um, is interested. Thank you very much, Mervyn. I'm sure if I let, uh, that was a brilliant uh, presentation and I'm with these, um, a lot of people, it's all about insightful, amazing, informative, impressive, excellent. And I want to say thank you because as you said, antibiotics, a lot of doctors have issues with antibiotics and it's a lot more complex during sepsis where you're also having leaky arteries and Everything that's going wrong is going wrong. Um, and you have to really look at the way the antibiotics work. Um, thank you very much. So, um, well, on that note, I'd like to thank this wonderful and very interactive and engaging audience. I also wanted to thank our panel speakers for um, giving us so much information. And we're looking forward to getting the, these on YouTube. And before I leave, I also want to thank those who have made this possible, the people working in the back end. Thank you very much and have a very fruitful afternoon. There's still more going on in the next session, so please join the next session. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making this event possible. We will be back next Tuesday, October 20th, with the final session, Early Identification and Appropriate Clinical Management of Sepsis Saves Lives and Prevents AMR. See you next week.